All right. Turn with me. In a few moments, we will read Psalm 145. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for the anointing on your word. We pray for your anointing on our ears and our minds. And we pray that as we go through your scripture today, that you would illuminate it in such a way that we see what we didn't see, we hear what we didn't hear, and that you do a work in us. I pray that you would help me today to say what you want me to say and to communicate what you want communicated. More than anything else, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Thank you in the name of Jesus. We've titled today, One Generation to Another. As you well know, I've been trying to bring this message for a while now, and here we are. I think that this is um, the word, or it's definitely a word for Abundant Life Church for 2019. I don't think it's the theme necessarily, Uh, When you say something's a theme for the year, then you expect everything that's done and said to fit into that theme. And that's not going to happen. We're not going to preach on this every week. But it's the word or a word for us to practice not just the rest of the year, but the rest of our lives. But pick a a spot. Um, And so in doing so, in, in examining Psalm 145, let's begin the new year with an exalted view of God. How many of you know that God is not exalted in a lot of theology today, the way he deserves to be exalted? Uh, And so once we have adopted this elevated and exalted view of God that he deserves and that the Scripture teaches, then let us resolve to tell another generation the good report about the Lord Jesus and his benevolent kingdom. Uh, We will examine this psalm in a moment, and I like taking the Scripture uh, in in context and letting the Scripture teach us from what it says. So, if you haven't done so already, if you turn to Psalm 145, we're going to start reading in verse 1, and if you would stand with me as we read the Word of God, And I'm reading again from the English Standard Version. It says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give you thanks, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds. 
and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. You can be seated. Just the sound of my voice sent that baby over the edge. (laughs) The New King James in verse 4 says, One generation will praise your works to another and declare your mighty acts. We, We live in a day that, let me see if I can word this the right way. We live in a day when... Uh, then, then when theologies have arisen that are less than biblical, one of which is a, is a doctrine of consumerism or a theology of consumerism, and that is that we, we exist to consume what God has or who God is, and God exists to provide for us solely, and, uh, and that's the only reason he exists, just to do things for us and give us stuff. And within the culture, uh, good theology, which we need, good theology is being tainted and mixed. And I'm not blaming the world for that. I'm blaming the church for that. And we're living in a day when when the culture would seek to alienate and marginalize any of us who, who hold on to the truth of Scripture. Our conference theme this year in Gatlinburg is spirit and truth. The the best way to overcome that and the best way to perpetuate God's way is to continue with the next generation as they come along. You say, what what defines the next generation? Well, I mean, you know, you could say I'll be 64 next month, so I could say a 60-year-old is a young person, and they would thank me. I love it when people call me boy. I hadn't heard. Been. But it's, a, it, it's incumbent upon us. Now, this passage primarily talks about one generation declaring to another. One generation telling another, which always indicates a younger generation. But it, there's room in this passage for one generation to another, not necessarily age. But primarily what we want to focus on today is the next generation. We want the next generation, whether they be 5 or 15 or whatever the case may be, we want the next generation to come up with a sense of what biblical truth is and what God says about himself. And we want to be able to declare to the next generation, those of us who have a little bit of age, and you can define that however you'd like, to be able to communicate in some way to the next generation. Now, I'm going to end today with a passage that helps us with, with a method. And But I want to just say this. We have made a mistake, we the church, we have made a mistake, I think, when we have reduced discipleship to a, to a Bible study or another program. When we have reduced discipleship to, to, to some kind of a doctrinal study. Good theology is important. Sound doctrine is extremely important. By the way, when Paul writes to Titus in the letter to Titus, Paul says, 
teach sound doctrine. And then he tells us what sound doctrine is. Do you remember what it is? He said, older guys teach the younger guys. Older women, and you have to determine that yourself, teach the younger women, next generation. Sound doctrine is communicating to the next generation the message that we have and we've been taught, and I don't just mean taught in an academic sense or in an intellectual sense, but that we have ga- we have gained the truth of Scripture by the Holy Spirit. And we take that truth and we transmit that to another generation. And in most cases, it's outside of an organized Bible study. I'm for Bible studies. I attend several a week. And I don't want us to quit doing them. But if we think that's all we need to do, then we err. And for those of you parents who have little ones, if you think the sum total of what your kids receive back there this morning is enough, then you're mistaken. All we as a church can do is help you with a little bit of a Band-Aid with your children. And, and they, you know, Cindy writes the curriculum back there. It is extremely biblical and sound. And thank God for what they get. But don't let that be all they get. I thought we'd had a little more amens there. Gone are the days that we can just drop off our children at Sunday school, and that's enough. I'm not sure those days ever were here. Paul, Paul, Paul's brother David, that was a joke, by the way. That's in the book of Hezekiah, by the way. He begins this psalm with extolling God. I want to show you something that I think I saw, and you can say whether you think I saw it or not. Uh, maybe I had too many drugs in me at the time. I don't know. Um, he begins to, to extol God at the beginning of this psalm. And to extol, a word we don't use very much, but it means to raise someone up with your words or to, to offer a eulogy. You know, a eulogy doesn't have to be at a funeral. It means to to praise someone or to exalt in commendation. It means to magnify. So he begins to magnify God. And I think in our current culture today, God needs to be magnified. In our eyes and in our children's eyes and young people's eyes, he needs to grow. We have put God in a microwave and we have shrunk him to the level of our needs. And he's greater than that. Is it okay if I preach to you today? I got a license. To, to extol someone is to signify that they are exalted. Is to signify that they are magnified. Is to declare that they are higher. Uh, David goes on in another place. Psalm 113, for the Lord is high above the nations. His glory is high, say higher, than the heavens. Who can he, who can be, I need my glasses. There we go. Who can be compared with the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? You know, that's a rhetorical question because the answer is no one. He, watch this verse. He stoops. God stoops to look down on heaven and earth. Did you see that he stoops to look down on heaven? That's how, that's how high God is and how high the psalm declares. In the, in the song of Moses, they sang in Exodus 15, Who is like you, 
among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises and working wonders? Who is like you? Once again, the answer is no one. No one is like God. And so David is in this this presence of God euphoria. And he, he gets so excited, he says, you are my God and king. Do you notice there's two little words there that are very important. He, he didn't just say you are God and king. He said, you are my God and king. And it's a personal thing. We need to communicate to the next generation that God is a personal God. A lot of young people today have been affected by deism. And deism, basically, this is a very oversimplification, but deism says God created us. He sent Jesus. He died on the cross, went back to heaven, and they're overhuddled in some corner of the universe, and they have no involvement in our lives. And one day they're going to, he's going to come back. But until then, we're kind of on our own. That's deism. And a lot of young people are embracing that. We need to teach the next generation that God's a personal God. God's an involved God. And he's involved with us. And he's involved with us daily. We will make it our aim to bless and praise the name of the Lord daily. Make it our aim to praise him and exalt him. And this, some of this is through behavior. It's not just the fruit of our lips, although that's the, one of the greatest ways is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to God's name. But through our behavior, we will bring praise and honor and glory to God. And if we're doing something that does not bring praise and honor and glory to God, we need to cease doing it. And David says, because the Lord is great. Because the Lord is great. Now, here you go. You can, you can judge this. But he begins this psalm praising the virtues of God Almighty. He begins this psalm extolling God. And when he gets to the point that God is great, watch what happens. From verse 3 to verse 4, he thinks of, we know what he thinks of because it's the first thing that comes out of his pen. He thinks of the next generation. Look at verse 4. He says, verse 3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Verse 4, One generation shall commend your works to another. I think that after verse 3, it occurs to David that the succeeding generations must, say must, must know about God must know about his greatness, and must know about his kingdom. I just think he's he's writing this psalm, and he says, Man, the next generation has got to have this. We can't neglect passing this on to the, to the next generation. He gets excited. And he writes, His greatness is beyond our understanding. We... We want to figure God out. I talk to people all the time. Well, I just don't understand why God does this. And I just don't understand why God doesn't do that. I just, I just think, well, just leave all that alone. His greatness is beyond, say beyond, our understanding. Can we accept God how he is? 
instead of trying to fashion him how we want him? There's a lot of things that I look around the world and I think, you know, God, if I was sitting on that throne, he'd be a little different. And a lot of people are grateful, but I'm not sitting on that throne, me included. His greatness is beyond the capacity of the human mind to fully describe or comprehend his greatness. You can't figure that out. You can't define it. You can explain it. I mean, you can describe it. You can tell it. But you can't define his greatness because your human mind cannot comprehend the greatness of our God. And we need to make sure that we're not communicating to the next generation a puny God who is weak, who is uncaring. But we we communicate a magnified God. Job's in the midst of conflict and trouble or in the presence of conflict and trouble. Job writes or said, as for me in, in that situation, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Who does Great things. Who does unsearchable things? Who does marvelous things? And there is no limit to what God does and who he is. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Uh, By the way, that was Job. Not exactly in the midst of a chill bump revival. You know, you need to stop praying for God to deliver you out of the storm, but you need to start praying for God to deliver you through the storm. You need to pray for God to preserve you, as the old gospel song says, till the storm passes by. Because the storm can work things in you. We don't want to hear that. But it's the challenges that we face. That works in us, not the great stuff that we face. Not the great times. Well, okay, I'll leave that alone because I'm losing the anointing. Isaiah 40 says his understanding is unsearchable. Do you see a big God? Do you see why it's so important for us to make sure that another generation understands who God is and the greatness of God? Because they're being told from every corner, not, I'm not just saying abundant life church is the only one, but there are parts of the church and parts of the culture that are teaching them that God is a little God and that he, he's really waiting on you before he can decide what he's going to do. Hmm. And, you know, y'all, that's exactly right, Sharon. That's exactly right. And I hate to break it to us, but None of us are going to live forever in this room, in this body. We might get a transfer and still be living, but none of us are going to be here forever. We need another generation to come behind us with the truth. And there's not enough Bible studies and Bible classes and any of that stuff to accomplish that. Now, all of that's good. Don't quit it. That's not enough. He said... 
in verse uh, 4, he said, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to meditate on your splendor. And the word there is what we would use for an ornament. We're going to meditate on God as in his splendor. His splendor is an ornament that communicates his magnificence, magnificence, his magnitude. It says, and I'm going to, I'm going to meditate. What do we meditate on? What do you meditate on? Don't, don't start telling me because I will get depressed. We meditate on what our checkbook looks like. We meditate on whether we got the flu or not. We meditate on our relationships. We meditate on our jobs. We meditate on what's on the news. Worse, what's on Facebook. We meditate on all this stuff. No wonder we have problems. No wonder these, anyway, I can't get into that. What do you meditate? David said, I'm going to meditate on the splendor, the magnificence. I can't even say that word. The magnitude of God. I'm going to meditate on the splendor of God as if it was an ornament of God. And I'm going to meditate on his wondrous works. And there's a play on words there in the Hebrew. It really means Literally on the words of your wondrous works. In other words, when I hear what God has done, I'm going to get excited. When I hear the words of his wondrous works, I'm going to tell somebody. And who are you going to tell? Well, I hope we're telling the next generation. I hope we're telling the ones that are coming. Oh, Lord. By the way, in this psalm, the works and the acts of God are mentioned eight times. Eight times in this psalm. I think God's trying to communicate something to us. And then he says, I'm going to speak of the might of God. We cower. We cower behind our circumstances. We cower beneath our weaknesses. We we are reticent to do anything, and we're reticent to believe God. But David said, I'm going to speak. Everybody say speak. I'm going to speak of your might. I'm going to speak of your strength, of your resolve, of your fierceness. I'm going to speak of who you are. And all that comes from a root word that means stout. We serve a stout God. So everybody say stout. Stout God. He said, I'm going to speak of your fierceness, of your stoutness. Why do we need to speak? Well, for one thing, so we can hear it. And another thing, we can communicate to another generation that the God we serve is not a weak God. He's not a puny God, but he's a God of strength. He's a God of fierceness. David said, I'm going to proclaim God's greatness. And then in verse Seven, he, the ESV says, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. This is a great play on the words here in the Hebrew text. It literally means to eagerly bubble forth the memory of God's more than enough goodness. If you don't, if you don't want to bubble forth the memory of God's goodness, then you don't know God's goodness. 
when you know God's been good, you, you know, I, I get emails or text messages all the time from people giving me good reports. I get some other kind too. That's fine. But I get good reports about what God has done in a particular situation, where he's moved, where he's acted. And people are bubbling forth to talk about their memory of God's goodness. And I like it. I usually reply back, thank you for good news. Eagerly bubble forth good news. And then he says something that we really like. He said in verse 7 at the end, they shall sing. Sing. Everybody say sing. Yeah. Sing. When we see God's greatness, when we see God's goodness, when we speak of his might, when we magnify God, when we, when we see him exalted as he is, the natural response is to sing. Reminds me of a very bad story. But I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Of course, I'm only on antibiotics, so I don't have much of an excuse. About, you've heard it, but the, the, the guy who was getting married, he was going to be an evangelist. And uh, he had two, yeah, yeah, oh, Lord's right. He had two girls that he was going to marry. One of them was just as beautiful as she could be and just radiant uh, all over. She could, But she couldn't sing a lick, couldn't play an instrument. And he had another lady who was less than beautiful, was not much to look at. But, buddy, she could play a piano and sing like a songbird. And he's considering his ministry, and he's going around. He, he needed someone to go with him, and... So he decided on the one who could play and sing. And so they had their, got married, had the honeymoon. He woke up the next morning. He looked over at her. He said, sing, baby, sing. <laughs> this is totally unrelated to my message. <laughs> but what is related is that... I don't know what he said, but <laughs> somehow we'll get that on the CD. But when we see God, when we see God and who he is and how he is, we, we say, I got to sing. I got to sing something. You know, you don't have to be here to sing. Now, some of you may may want to help the people around you and sing in the shower or something. Or, but you don't have to be here to sing. As a matter of fact, please don't let this be the only place you ever sing. You know, take the songs you sing here and take them with you throughout the week and sing. When you think of God, sing. When you talk about communicating to another generation, sing. Sing aloud, it says, of your righteousness. And then he talks about they will speak of the glory of of God's kingdom. We need to pass on to the next gen next generation who God is. We need to make sure they understand the greatness and the might of who God is. And we need to make sure that we communicate to another generation God's kingdom and the glory of his kingdom. Now, we've been speaking a lot in the last months about the kingdom of God. And so I'm not going to go back and redo all of that, but we need to make sure that another generation understands that they have a king. We don't like having a king because we think, oh, he's our boss. 
Our king is a benevolent king. Our king is a loving king, and yet he is our king. And he did say that if you want to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. We were too quick to embrace a crossless gospel. The cross is still there. It will always be there. And that's where we find our place in God is at the foot of the cross. It's not a popular message. You can't fill up many churches preaching about the cross. But I'd rather have a few that are willing to hear the cross than to have thousands. Well, I'll leave that alone. He says, I'm going to tell of his power. They're going to tell of his power, of his force, of his... The word there really comes from a word that means insolence. Can you believe that God is insolent? What does that mean? He's not going to move. He's not going to give. That his power is a force. The psalmist said that he's going to make known to another generation God's mighty deeds. We've covered that. Look, turn over with me to Psalm 78. You're not that far away in your Bible or your phone or your tablet. Psalm 78. We're going to read the first eight verses. You can remain seated. I'll just read them. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Did you see that? I'm going to read that again. I will open my mouth in a parable and I will utter, will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known and that our fathers have told us, one generation to another. Verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, but tell. Everybody say tell. To the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. One generation to another, that generation to another. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. What defines a stubborn and rebellious generation? One who will not speak to the next one who will not communicate from one generation to another those are the fathers that God judged by the way you've heard me say this fathers you have the primary responsibility that doesn't mean the mothers aren't involved matter of fact they do more more than you do but the responsibility rests on you don't abdicate don't just go to work and leave the kids with with the wife And let her take care of all the raising and all the discipline. My pastor used to tell me, you be the heavy. 
And so I was the heavy. And now my kids hate me. They love their mother, but they hate me. I'll leave that alone. We know that's not true. Tell them the splendor of your kingdom. The everlasting nature of your kingdom. Communicate that they have a king. I've told this before. Some of you have told me you can use it. One of the best ways you can teach your children about the kingdom of God is take them into their bedroom, assuming they have one by themselves. And if they don't, take both of them in there. But take your children into their bedroom and tell them, you, this is your kingdom. This is your domain right here. Your responsibility is to take care of this room. Now, if I come in here and there's clothes all over the floor and I, and I have forgotten that we have carpet, that's not a good, that's not a good stewardship of your, of your domain. You take care of this room. Make sure it's clean and orderly and everything's in place and you take care of it. And I'm going to come in as your parent and I'm going to inspect it and I'm going to be pleased when you have when you have uh, stewarded your domain, and I'm going to be displeased when you haven't. And when they grow up and God says to them, the world is your kingdom, and specifically, here is your garden where I want you to, to work, and this is the part of the earth that I'm giving you. Each one of us have a garden. I'm giving you to till and to, to work underneath the authority of our king. They'll understand the kingdom of God. I saw a picture the other day. I don't even know where I saw it, but some folks that had gone to heaven and they were standing around and they said the only problem is with these people in heaven, they're standing around looking at their hands like they don't know what to do. They had empty hands, but they, you know what used to be there? A phone. They were all standing around looking at their hands. Where did my phone go? No phones in heaven. I'm sorry, I hate to break it to you. <laughs> we need to teach our children about the kingdom. Anyway, we need to teach them that it's everlasting. We need to teach them that God's dominion endures throughout all generations. There does, there's not going to come a day when God's kingdom doesn't, doesn't exist. There's not going to come a day when, when the king removes himself as the king. He will always be our king. And we need to come under the authority of our king and subject ourselves to him and submit. I know we don't like that word. Submit ourselves to him as our king and function in the earth as his subjects so that we extend the kingdom into the earth one person at a time. Now, if you'll skip back up to verses 8 and 9, I just want to point this out. I kind of went past that. But it's kind of like, it's almost like David put his summation right in the middle. Uh, I'm talking about 145, by the way. Well, I don't hear any pages fluttering. Okay. I don't even hear mine. I did have Psalm 145 in this Bible a few minutes ago. It says, the Lord is gracious and merciful. This is the God that we serve. He's slow to anger. There's a key there. Slow to anger doesn't mean he's never angry. I hate to break it to us, but sometimes God gets angry over the things we've done. Not because he's, you know, I wish I had a picture of God standing over us with a hammer. 
Like, you ever done, ever played whack-a-mole? Sometimes I think we view God as holding the whatever you hold in whack-a-mole, and every time we raise our head, he, he's pounding us. And I think we've communicated God as that kind of a God. He's ready to whack us every time we make a mistake. It's not because he wants to do that. It's because, let me tell you something. When we accept a lifestyle other than God's prescribed lifestyle, we are settling for less. Somebody say less. We're settling for less than what God has for us. When we, when we adopt a lifestyle of sin, whatever label you want to put on it, we have accepted less than what God has prescribed for us. And God knows. Doesn't it make sense that the one who made you would know best what is good for you and what is not good for you? We don't often live that way. But it says... He's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, that's good news. He's abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. Sometimes we question that. We look at our own life or we look at somebody else's life and say, well, I don't think God's really good to them. You don't see what God sees. And his mercy is over all that he has made. That's God. Now, for one last passage and we'll finish. Turn back to Deuteronomy. I would really like for you to turn. And uh, if you're asleep, wake up. If you need the rest, just go back to sleep. This is a key passage. When we start talking about one generation to another, this is such a key passage because we want to reduce this to church. We want to reduce this to a Bible study or to a program. We want to buy a booklet and call it discipleship. But this is such a, this is God's way. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you arise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. How do we communicate to the next generation? Obviously, Church and Bible study and all that, we do, that's part of it. But especially when you're dealing with your children, if you want to have a family devotional, that's fine. But don't let that be all. You, he said, you embrace these words and communicate them to the next generation when you lay down, when you get up, when you're walking around the house, when you're living your life, when you're, when you're going to the, whatever recreational activity you're going to, communicate through life. To the next generation. Don't wait for a formal setting when you can teach doctrine. We will keep the next generation in the truth if we will do that. If we will do that. 
God says, here's what I want you to do. Now, here's what some of the rabbis and some of the Jewish people did with verse 8. They made phylacteries, which was a little box, and they put scripture in it, and they walked around that thing on their hand. They thought, well, that's good enough. And they had stuff in, on their forehead. Well, our kids are going to get that. And we laugh. But we walk around like this. And they say, well, oh, my daddy is a spiritual man because he carries a Bible. Would be interesting to know what's in it, but he's a spiritual man. Phylacteries. You know I'm not opposed to carrying the Bible. I brought this one from my office and in here. But God says, communicate it every day, every minute. Let your lifestyle communicate to the next generation. Let your lifestyle share God's word with them. And, and, and when you get up and you lie down and when you're walking around the house and whatever you're doing, let that be the, the way that you speak to that next generation. I have hope for the coming generation because I have confidence in you. And, and, and a lot of other churches around Middle Tennessee and around the world who are communicating to the next generation the truth of the Scripture and the truth of the Gospel that will cause them to endure. And when we're long gone, I pray that the truth of God and the truth of Scripture is still being proclaimed to the next generation. Are you okay with that? Let's, let's stand with me.